0: Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, Please visit this program's page on our website or app.
1: Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you now to be here among us, sending down your Holy Spirit upon this, your Institute of Catholic Culture family that in all things we might glorify your holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and
0: of the Holy Spirit, amen.
2: So I am very pleased to welcome our speaker this evening. He earned his PhD in systematic theology from Ave Maria University. Dr. Jarrett Stout currently serves as Associate Superintendent for Mission and Formation in the archdiocese of denver and he is also a visiting professor for the augustine institute he's the author of restoring humanity essays on the evangelization of culture and an editor of renewing catholic schools how to regain a catholic vision in a secular age you also would like i think to pick up a copy of his book the beer option brewing a catholic culture yesterday and today, Dr. Stout and his wife, Anne, have six children, and he is a Benedictine oblate. So we are very happy to welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. Jared Stout.
1: Welcome, doctor. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Annie. And, you know, we're here to talk about a really cheerful topic this evening, <laughs> catechesis in crisis. So, um, But anyway, uh, despite the topic which is heavy, but where we're going to end on an optimistic note, not optimistic in an earthly sense, but rooted in the virtue of hope. Uh, But nonetheless, it's great to be with you. It's really a joy. Um, And when we're talking about catechesis in crisis, I want to make clear right away that we're talking about more than what's going on with Sunday school or our religious ed programs. Catechesis ultimately is the transmission of the faith to the next generation. That is what has broken down. That is what's in crisis. And of course, that does involve the way that we teach the faith in our parishes, but it is so much more than that. And catechesis deepens faith, but if we don't even have faith, then there is even a more fundamental crisis that we need to address in the church. In this crisis, there are both internal problems related to the church, and external problems related to our culture, but what I want to help you to see is that those two are very much related. The crisis of catechesis in the church has a lot to do with the crisis of our culture surrounding us, and the crux of my talk is really about how we use our freedom. Are we using it for ourselves, kind of stuck in the individualism of our culture, or are we ordering it to God? We're going to look at the, the, the purpose of our freedom as leading us to God. Now, we all know that there is a crisis of faith in the church. We, I mean, we can look just around us at our families or in the pews to say that the transmission of the faith has broken down uh, in the church right now. We can look at a lot of things, but I think something that has really caught our attention recently is the survey that was conducted by uh, Pew saying that two thirds of Catholics, church going Catholics do not believe in the true presence of Jesus. CARA, uh, which is uh, an institute based at Georgetown gives us all kinds of stats. And what Kara tells us is that in addition, there are a lot less Catholic marriages. There's a lot less baptisms that are happening. And we might think, well, yeah, that's because there's less Catholics. But it's actually the opposite. There are more Catholics now in the United States than ever before, significantly more, actually, than there were in the 1960s. And yet every measurable way you could look at the situation of the church right now would point to this crisis. I work in Catholic schools, and that's another one. Every year there's less schools. There's less students in those schools. And so we should really think to ourselves, what do we need to do differently? Because what we're doing right now isn't working. And some of the things are very fundamental. And that's why we're going to be looking at faith, conscience, and doctrine as some of the core things that we really need to attend to as Catholics for this renewal of catechesis and a renewal of faith, most importantly. If we do look back to the supposed glory days of the 1950s and 60s, we do see a very different number. Uh, 75% of Catholics were going to mass each Sunday. Vocations were booming. There were a lot more baptisms and marriages and everything, all the other metrics were high. But in some ways there was an external weakness that allowed things to crumble very quickly. Right, If things had really been strong in the church in the 1950s and early 60s, we could have withstood the onslaught of the culture more strongly, but things really did collapse quickly. By the end of the 1960s, we went from 75% weekly mass attendance to about where we are today, 25%. So in less than 10 years, there was a drastic change. Now, my friend, Dr. Joe Burns, is actually writing a a kind of a personal memoir about what happened. He was uh, in high school in the early 1960s in Manhattan. And he said that, yes, you know, you'd go to Mass and Mass was full and everyone was kneeling and you could see a lot of devotion. But he said, going through Catholic schools and just growing up a Catholic in New York City, no one ever spoke about having a relationship with Jesus. No one ever spoke about personal prayer or reading the Bible. No one in his whole childhood. So there can be external conformity with an internal weakness, an immaturity in faith. Now, I think we're facing the opposite today, right? There's an external weakness, and therefore we need to build back up with an internal strength. All right, so that's really what we're going to be looking at. Pope Benedict has, in looking at this crisis, really put his finger on something that we tend to think of a crisis of faith in the world. But Pope Benedict has said that the crisis of faith ultimately is in the church herself; that the church is the one who, according to a church father, is meant to be the soul of the world. That comes out in a letter to Diognetus. It's an anonymous letter, but. The church is the soul of the world. And if there is a sickness to the soul, the body will suffer. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that receiving the Eucharist unworthily creates sickness and even death. So if two-thirds of Catholics don't believe in the true presence and we're approaching the Eucharist unworthily regularly, there is going to be a sickness in the church that then makes the world itself even weaker. The church is weak, the world itself suffers. This catechesis uh, that we've been experiencing in the last 50 years reflects this crisis. I mean, how many of us have received watered-down catechesis, right? You know, the, we always talk about the, the cut and the pace and the coloring, you know, and, and that's really what it was. There, was. there was no doctrine there. There was nothing that was calling us into a relationship with Christ. There was no element of conversion. It was just kind of leaving us where we were at and affirming our experience as just good in itself. And so catechesis went from calling us into an understanding of our faith to simply saying, "Ah, you know, you're fine where you're at. And this is why John Paul II has called for a new evangelization. He said that, a big part of the problem is that baptized Christians are living in accord with the culture more than they are living in accord with the faith, that there's a split between faith and culture, faith in the way that we live. And so we need to call these non-practicing Christians back to an act of faith and to a life of faith. Now, I mentioned that this crisis in the church is is not something that we could just kind of pinpoint as happening in the church apart from the world. Uh, It is very much bound up with the crisis of culture in the last 50 years. And so what's happening? I mean, we all know it from experience, but when we look back over the last 50, 60 years, there is a radical revolution that has taken place. And because many of us have been living through it, you know, sometimes it can be hard to take a step back and to really assess that and to say, well, well, what really has happened? Well, the first thing should be clear to us all that we live in the first secular culture in all of human history. One of my favorite historians, Christopher Dawson, spent his entire career tracing the relationship of religion and culture through every civilization up until the 1960s, actually. And he said that we are truly unique in the sense that we are trying to exclude religion. But what actually happens, he says, is that secular ideologies then take the place of religion in our culture. Well, one of the best examples would be communism, right? Communism becomes a kind of secular religion that promises salvation. What kind of salvation? Well, it's, it's salvation here and now and it's saying that there will be prosperity if we make everyone the same. Communism tries to erode the family, to get rid of religion, to remove any distinction between people. It's act, it's absolutely inhuman. So that's just one ideology. In the west, our ideology has been almost the opposite, right? Communism is a great collectivism. In the west, we have focused on individualism. Although I think this individualism has become so extreme that it's actually opening us up to collectivism, right? This individualism has run its course and that's where it's leading us. But in this individualism, there is a revolt against any authority, against the past, right? Because the past seems constraining and limited. And it's particularly rebelling against sexual morality, right? And the, the sexual revolution begun in the 1960s is not finished as we see, right? And in a way it is only getting ramped up to the point that nature itself is seen as a constraint on freedom, not just our, the nature of our sexuality, but even the nature of our humanity itself. Because I think the next major step after transgenderism is going to be transhumanism, right? We're going to have to fight for what it even means to be a human being. But what unites this revolution against authority, against the past, against morality? It's a kind of iconoclasm, right? Father was talking about iconoclasm before we started the class, right? The second uh, council of Nicaea. Iconoclasm rejects an image of goodness that is presented to us. It, it rejects an image of truth to say, I will shatter that because I refuse to conform to it. And this refusal to conform led to massive unrest in the 1960s, in particular, the beginning of this revolution. You had student uprising, race riots, the Vietnam War protests, assassinations, It seemed like the world was on fire. And in a way, people have been making comparisons to that time uh, for our culture right now, that it seems like we're back um, in that time of upheaval. But beyond particular issues on campus or in the streets, it really was traditional values that were being attacked. The, The religion of the era was relativism, saying that, You can't impose anything on me because we really can't know the truth. We can't really know what we're supposed to do. So everyone just needs to do what feels right for themselves. And I think that's key. What feels right, not what is right. What feels right. And that involved even a reinterpretation of religion, Because, you know, people looked around and said, look, there's all these religions. I happen to be born Catholic or Jewish or whatever. So why should I just accept the constraints that were arbitrarily given to me by my birth? That doesn't make any sense. So I need to remove the shackles of religion to truly be free. And I think it's really important for understanding the nature of faith because... Um, At the time, I think what people are really saying is, what really matters is what I believe, not what a particular religion believes. It's my own choice that is primary. So what was happening then in the 1960s uh, when this upheaval is going on? Well, one of the, the most significant events in recent church history happened at the same exact time the Second Vatican Council, and the Second Vatican Council was calling us to something called inculturation. This is something that's happened from the very beginning of the church. It is entering into the culture in which we live as Christians and trying to heal and purify the culture and to transmit the gospel through it. What Pope John Twenty Third realized in the 1960s is that the split between the church and culture was becoming very significant. And this was building up for hundreds of years since the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. Even go back to the Reformation before that. There was this split between modern culture and the Catholic church. And the Catholic church was this kind of boogeyman standing against progress in the eyes of the world. And so John Twenty Third said, well, what we really need to do is to take the deposit of faith and to communicate it more effectively. That was his purpose in calling the second Vatican council to say that this is our task right now. This is what we need to do. We can't just allow the modern world to kind of, to go to hell in a handbasket, but we need to try to rescue and transform the modern world. And so, Vatican II, when you look at all the documents as a whole, really do come down to that. In a way, they were calling for the new evangelization before Pope John Paul II made that call explicit. Every document is saying, we need to make the church's tradition more clear to the modern world. But I think we can ask, and and Stephen Bullivant in his book, Mass Exodus, kind of concludes with this question, did the purpose... Of Vatican II succeed, did this kind of call to evangelization actually happen? Well, John the Twenty Third, you know, spoke of opening the windows of the church. He said the, the church is kind of like this ivory tower, saying, ah, you know, we're just going to stand against the modern world. And so he's saying, no, 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 we need to go out into the world. So let's open the windows of the church. But what did we find when we opened those windows? Well. It was not a lot of fresh air. And what I'm really getting at, it was that very revolution that was based on individualism that infiltrated the church, that that really passed into the church. How? By influencing the lives of Christians. And so in the 1960s, a lot of people felt like maybe we needed to go along with the culture. If the church was calling us to evangelize, well, what can we learn from modern culture? How can we bring the gospel into it? Those, those are good questions. But in that process, so many Christians kind of got swept up in an enculturation gone wrong. And if you, if you want evidence for what I'm talking about, it really would be in catechesis. The Dutch bishops, for instance, issued a catechism, which in English we just call the Dutch catechism. But it called into question things like original sin. It called the church's teaching on sexuality into question. This was an official catechism of the Dutch bishops, right? And there were, there were other thinkers at the time, like Gabrielle uh, Morin, who said that revelation is essentially about our own experience. And so catechesis should just draw people into themselves to find God within so I'm not criticizing Vatican II at all. I'm simply saying that in calling us to go out into the world, the first round of that, at least in the last 50 years, has been very messy. And rather than successfully evangelizing the modern world, we have now entered into a crisis of faith. And so the intention of John 23rd has not happened yet, right? And, and that doesn't mean that the vision of Vatican II can't happen. And that's where we're going to end, and say, what do we need to do right now with catechesis in order to try to make that a reality? But if I'm correct in saying that freedom really stands at the, the root of modern culture, that's what we really believe in, is modern individualistic freedom and autonomy, well, then we do actually really need to engage that idea. Enculturation really would then entail trying to take the aspirations of the modern world and to direct them to God. And so freedom is actually crucial in a proper catechesis. We have freedom because we are made in the image and likeness of God. And what's really troubling, I think we can view freedom from the opposite point of view. You know, like Milton's Paradise Lost, that the the devil becomes this champion of freedom who says, you know, I would rather be free in hell than a servant or a slave in heaven. And so we tend to think of freedom in these negative terms. I'm really free if I can do whatever I want. If I can remove all the obstacles away from my freedom, then I am really free. And it's the opposite, right? To be free is to be able to live a life of excellence. And so really, you know, we can identify two different kinds of freedom. We could speak of a freedom from, and I think this really would be the freedom of our culture. I am free if I can do whatever I want to do. If I can be whoever I want to be. And and we can see this being taken to radical extremes. It's also why there's a breakdown in marriage because people today think that marriage is about them. And it's about serving their freedom, but it's the opposite. So the second kind of freedom is a freedom for. So not freedom from, but a freedom for something. And what is that for? right? It is a freedom for excellence. I am truly free if I can use my freedom in the right way. And what is the right way? A virtue that leads to happiness. And Survey Harris, who's a great theologian, he has a little overview of morality that I would recommend called morality, the Catholic view. And he goes through these two different kinds of freedoms. But he uses the example of the piano that the freedom from would, would approach the piano and say, Don't tell me how to play the piano. I can bang the keys any way that I want. Now, everyone listen to me. <laughs> and it's like, Oh my gosh, I don't want to listen to that. That is ugly. That's destructive <laughs> of real music. And a freedom for would say, You are truly free if you can play Mozart. Do you have that freedom? Can you play Mozart? Oh, well, then then you're not free. You're just banging the keys, right? What's the equivalent of playing Mozart in our lives? It is acquiring virtue so that you can achieve excellence in your life. The religion of our country, I think, really, we could say, is the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, right? We say life, liberty, and happiness. But that really, should make us think about the nature of happiness because I think there's two different understandings of happiness that are based on these different understandings of freedom. The Supreme Court has basically said that the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of ultimate meaning, this was Justice Kennedy, is defining the purpose of your own existence. That's how you pursue happiness, however you want. But we should all be able to say very quickly, well, that's not how people become happy, just by doing whatever they want. I can look at this person. This person has a lot of money, or this person is a sex addict, or or this person is an alcoholic or is on drugs. They're doing whatever they want, but they're not happy, right? They haven't found happiness. We cannot create our own identity. It's not something that we can just achieve on our own. It's something that has to be accepted. And and that is really the crux of the matter. Are we willing to accept the path to happiness as something that is given to us? Or are we going to insist on creating our own path even if it leads to our own destruction? What we see playing out in our country right now is really a competing sense of freedom and rights. I have a right to do whatever I want. And not only that, you must say that what I am doing is good, even if it's harmful. So when we talk about gender ideology in Catholic schools, I always say that we cannot affirm as true something that is false, right? Truth is based on reality. Thomas Aquinas had a great definition of truth, the conformity of the mind to reality. And I think that's also true for our happiness, right? We will be happy when we conform to the reality of what it means to be a human and what it means to be an excellent human, to to live an excellent life, right? That is not something that we can create on our own. And so this really takes us into the question then about belief, right? So if in the 1960s and the decades following, including in the church, people rejected faith because they said that's an imposition, we come to the question of conscience. Am I bound to believe what the church teaches? Or can I, or even should I decide for myself? Immanuel Kant, in his essay, What is Enlightenment, said, to really be mature, to really grow up, you have to throw off the shackles of the priests who are trying to tell you what to believe. And I think many Catholics, they might not know anything about Kant, but I think in a way, they feel that way. We're not in the Middle Ages anymore. I don't just have to believe whatever the church teaches me. I'm free. Right? And so we would say, it's a matter of conscience, right? In my conscience, I'm not going to listen to this or I'm not going to listen to that. But we don't even know what conscience is, right? What what is conscience? It's an application of the moral principles that God has instilled within us to a given situation. So the basic moral principle that God has instilled within us is to do what is good, And to avoid what is bad what is evil do good avoid evil that's the whole basis of the natural law and we need to be educated on what is truly right and what is wrong what is harmful to us and so uh, our conscience can be misinformed we can you know make a bad application the church says we do have to follow our conscience but our conscience has to be informed by, we hope, you know, the, the proper instruction that we are getting from our parents, but ultimately by the church herself. Now, Vatican II, you know, has been really misinterpreted by a lot of people. My wife's great uncle is a priest, a missionary priest, and he told me that he was taught that the purpose of Vatican II was to tell you that you can decide for yourself what is right and wrong. I mean, that's like going back to the fall, right? I mean, the devil was saying to Eve, you can decide for yourself what is good and evil. That's the whole meaning of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Are you going to accept it from God? Or are you going to say that you know better than God? Because if you reject the faith out of the freedom of your conscience, you're back with Eve. You're saying, ah, no, God, I know better than you. Thanks so much. Right, I, I have this. I got it. You know, What did Vatican II actually say? Well, even speaking on the hot button issue of sexuality, Gaudium et Spes, kind of the main document of Vatican II, in my opinion, said that in terms of sexuality, spouses needed to be, quote, governed according to a conscience, dutifully conformed to the divine law itself. And should be submissive toward the church teaching office, right? The, the magisterium, the teaching office of the church, which authentically interprets that law in light of the gospel. So God has instilled within you a principle to always try to do what is right. And then God has revealed to us through the church what is in fact right and wrong. And so there should not be any conflict between the two. They They need to line up. It's a great gift that the church gives us to guide our conscience. So the world is not resting on our shoulders. We are not trying to figure out for ourselves what is right and wrong because we are weak. We make mistakes. And so if we look at what happened in the church in the 1960s at the exact moment when all the student protests were breaking out around the world when when the assassinations were occurring it was 1968. And that is the year that Pope Paul VI issued Humanae Vitae about the church's teaching on contraception, which everyone was thinking of in political terms, right? This is another issue of enculturation. Well, we decide in our country what's right and wrong by taking a vote on it. Should we have abortion? Well, actually that was a vote of Supreme Court justices, but, or should we have gay marriage? Also a vote of Supreme Court justices. But anyway, it's about voting. We will vote for what we think is right and wrong. And so that is how people were thinking of the church's teaching. But the church has taught consistently about contraception from the very beginning. It's part of the church's infallible teaching, the ordinary magisterium. So when Paul VI issued Humanae Vitae in 1968, it led to a mass revolt against the church's teaching. And it really was the beginning of what we call cafeteria Catholicism, to say that I can pick and choose uh, for myself what I will believe. And what actually happens when we do that? Well, our faith becomes based upon our own opinions to say, once again, well, I disagree with that. I don't think that that's right. And so I'm not going to listen to that. Well, what are we saying? If we take that stance, we're saying that I know better. I am the one who should decide for myself. And that is the way that the spirit of radical individualism and autonomy from our culture comes into the church itself. This is really huge because faith is a matter of deciding, am I going to live for God Am I going to surrender to him or will I follow myself? Ultimately, that's what faith is. To say, I will follow God. I will surrender to him. He knows better than I do. That is the whole purpose of it. And if it's my ideas, it's not faith. Because we define faith as assenting completely without reserve to all that God has revealed to us. What is assent? Well, it's affirming something as true based on the testimony of another. So faith is assent. It's, uh, it's knowledge that is based on someone else's knowledge. And we actually know so much of what we know based on assent. You open up a textbook, a science textbook you haven't done those experiments. If you read that textbook and and you say you agree with it, that's assent. I'm assenting to the author of this textbook and I'm assenting to all of the research that it was based on, even though I haven't done it myself. I haven't proven any of those equations. I haven't conducted the experiments, but I say I accept it as true. Most of what we know is based on assent. When it comes to faith, we are assenting to God to say, "Well, God." You are the one who knows yourself. (laughs) I don't know who you are. I can't find you on my own in this world. I can't discover you by my own efforts. You have to make yourself known to me, and I have to accept who you are. I have to conform my mind to the reality of who you are. That's truth, remember? The conformity of the mind to reality. And the only way I can do that is if I say yes to you. If I say, yes, Lord, you are the one who knows. I don't know. And we're not only accepting the truth of who God is, we are accepting the truth that he is our creator and our redeemer. Meaning, he knows what will truly make us happy. We don't know. If if we just go off on our own and, and try to say that we know better than God, we're going to be miserable. And so the surrender is to say, I will follow you, Lord. You are the way. You are the truth. And you are the life, right? Because happiness is really becoming fully alive. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. You know what is good for me better than I do myself. And so we surrender. And so the question is then in terms of this clash with our culture, is that freedom or is that an offense of violence against our freedom? Well, if we think of freedom in radical terms, then yeah, that is an imposition on my freedom because if I believe in God, I have to obey him. It requires humility on my part to say, I'm not the ultimate authority. I'm not the one who truly knows what is good and evil. I'll accept it. So yes, that is an imposition on freedom. But if we go back to a proper understanding of freedom as freedom for excellence, then it's a recognition that I will only be happy. I will only be fulfilled if I follow the way of my creator and my redeemer. If I humble myself before God, then I can reach my excellence because we do not go to heaven by being a nice person. Heaven is something that completely exceeds us. What is heaven? It is a perfect and total union with God. It's not in our control. It's not something that we can earn. It is only Something we can accept as a gift. And it's given to us when we humble ourselves in faith and obedience. And what does God do? He opens up the impossible to us, something that we could never do on our own, to live the divine life, to become partakers of the divine nature, as St. Peter said. God gives us everything. And so, yes, we could cling to our little scrap of freedom here on earth and say, I want to do it my way. You know, and we know we've all done that many times. Right. You know, every time we sin, that's what we're doing. No, I'm doing it my way. Or we can surrender to God and receive everything from him. Not just the fullness of human life. Oh, no. The fullness of the divine life. That's what he wants to give us. And so rather than this adversarial kind of pounding us down in submission, God gives us our freedom to be able to cooperate with him in coming to faith so that we can experience for ourselves the joy of communion with him. This surrender, this conversion is a source of true joy and faith. It's not only a joy to come, but faith is a way to live a truly good and excellent life now. So faith is what we need to guide our freedom, to tell us what is truly good and what is bad. It is the guide of our conscience. When we surrender to God, then our conscience can be truly informed. We can't say that our conscience is in conflict with the one who made it, unless we are poorly informing our conscience, right? If we're giving in to the lies of our culture, if we're giving in to false freedom, then our conscience may tell us to rebel against God. But rather, He wants us to see the world with His eyes. And when we do that, we can then see the true purpose of doctrine as a guide for us on the path of freedom. Not trying to just discover everything on our own, and also not simply a blind obedience. God is revealing the truth of life to us, and he wants to awaken our minds. He wants our reason to be more active, to think more. You think the devil wants us to think about everything? No, right? No, he wants to shut down our minds. We see that all around us. False freedom leads to false thinking. St. Paul says that. Through corrupt sexual desires, he says our minds have become darkened. That's what happens. But God, through his truth, by knowing God and living in communion with him, we enter into the light and we can see everything with fresh eyes. Why is the church so committed to education? Because God wants us to know. He wants us to have wisdom. Faith deepens our desire for truth. And when we think about this freedom for excellence, though, it should also make us think about how we teach doctrine. In the past, during those, you know, alleged glory days in the 1950s and early 60s, was there a blind obedience? Pray, pay, and obey. That's what people joke about, right? You know, go to mass, memorize, you know, what we're telling you to memorize and don't ask any questions, right? No, that's not a Catholic approach. And I know that that's a characterization. So I'm not saying that's everything that was happening prior. So it's like we went from memorizing doctrine, but it, it didn't take root personally, to then in the 19, end of the 1960s, catechesis collapsing, so, what do we, we need to do now? We need to return to orthodoxy, to a right belief of the faith, but we need to really encounter the realities of faith. The Catechism says, and quoting St. Thomas Aquinas, that we do not believe in propositions, but in realities. What's the reality of faith? It's God. God is the object of our faith. He's the one we have faith in. And so everything else that we believe, we only believe of in light of him. Pope Benedict said this at the beginning of his encyclical, Deus Caritas Est. He said, faith is not a proposition or an ethical maxim. It's not just like a commandment. He said, faith is an encounter with a person, the person of Jesus Christ, And so if we were missing something in the past, even during the glory days, it was truly coming to know God in a personal way, in living in relationship with him every single day. And I think in helping young people in particular, but this is of course true of adults as well, to come to an act of faith, we have to help them to choose God. This is how we make use of our freedom. God is giving us a choice. He's saying, come follow me. But in the past, did we ever say that to Catholics? Hey, God wants you to follow him. He wants you to be his disciple, which actually means student, right? You know, To place yourself at his feet, to listen to him, to pray with him in a relational way every day, to learn the story of the Bible, to connect your faith to your life at home, at work. And so we need an active reception of the faith, right? If our transmission of the faith is broken down, partly it's because doctrine bounces off of people. If you just say, here's the doctrine, it bounces off, right? And so we need an active reception of faith. Pope Benedict said, it can't just be informative. It's not just about learning about things. It has to be performative. It has to be a way of life. For us. Well, how does that happen? Well, Christian Smith, in in a great book, Young Catholic America, right, he traces the the breakdown of our transmission of the faith. He said, you know, me and my colleagues, right, you know, we discovered that simply going to a Catholic school or attending youth ministry, religious said, has no measurable effect on the practice of the faith into adulthood. That's a staggering claim. There's no measurable impact of sending kids to to catechetical programs just in and of themselves. He said, but there are three things that if we do them, it will make it more likely than not that kids will practice the faith into adulthood. And the first thing is that faith is transmitted through mentorship, not through classrooms, but through mentorship. You know, why did any of us come to faith? Well, it's through the influence of someone else. It probably wasn't just opening up a book or anything like that, right? It's in relationship with other people. And so the faith is transmitted relationally. He says that parents by far are the most impactful mentors. Secondly, he says that formation programs have to be in support of that mentorship. So if you go to a Catholic school or youth ministry program, religious ed program, that is a supplement to the mentorship. And then finally, faith has to be an active part of our daily lives. He said daily prayer, going on retreats, doing service, having friends who are also trying to do the same thing. You know, all of this makes faith something that doesn't just happen an hour a week or going to mass and then another hour a week with religious ed or whatever, but it has to be daily. And so I think that's very important, right? That Each day is shaped by prayer, that our thinking and imagination is shaped through faith, that our work, our family life becomes shaped by faith, and then we have community in which we can live this out. To go back to Stephen Bullivant's book, Mass Exodus, he said the one thing we really did have going for us in the 1950s is that there was a whole community surrounding the parish, right? There was like a a Catholic subculture. And it's not that we necessarily have to build a Catholic bubble, but it is true that to transmit the faith effectively, we can't be individuals, right? Because that's the problem of the culture to begin with. So how do we overcome the crisis of individualism that's in our culture, this bad enculturation that's been infiltrating the church? Well, we have to do it with other people that we have to create effective or really vibrant community at the parish because it's kind of dead. You go to mass, you leave. Coffee and donuts, you know, you go down there, you drink a cup of coffee, eat your donut, and even that you leave, right? So we have to do meaningful things. We have to build community, probably like through the regular gatherings of small groups. We have to gather people in our homes. And our kids need not just the witness of parents, but the witness of parents surrounded by the witness of others. And this is really how we can be apostolic. This is how we can be effective in the new evangelization because what are you gonna invite people into? It can't just be come with me to mass once, or it can't just be read a book, it has to be come and see. Come and see the reality of faith in my family, in my group of friends, at my parish, because it's real. And I want you to see it in a way that is even tangible. It's not an idea. You know, it's not a bunch of commandments, Like, How do we break out of that false freedom? It's love, right? So ultimately faith leads us into love and that love gives us a hope that God will not abandon us. That no matter what is going on in the church, no matter what is happening in our lives, that we have a rock in God. And if we root our lives in that rather than ourselves, then we will make it through the storm, no matter what, right? That is the promise of God. Stay faithful to him, believe in him, live a life of hope and love, and we will make it through the crisis. So thank you all, uh, for tuning in this evening. And I think we have some time, uh, for questions.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Stout. That was enlightening. You ready for some questions? Absolutely. Awesome. Okay, let's start with why aren't the bishops doing anything about this?
1: Well, I would say that the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which was actually a joint effort of all the bishops around the world, was something that was being done to help the the crisis of catechesis. As I said, you know, I mean, doctrine in and of itself is not enough, but the catechism has done a lot of good in the church and it has led to a lot of, I mean, better textbooks, better programs, even better catechetical institutes. So simply clarifying the teaching of the church was an effort of all the bishops around the world and it was very successful. Now, what was I saying though, right? What we need to see now, in my opinion, is stronger community kind of building around the faith. And I would put out here that that may be our task, that if we sit around and wait for the hierarchy to tell us how to live with faith in the world, and even at our own parishes, we're going to be waiting too long. So I would say the catechism is a great guide that the church has given us. Now let's live it and let's build uh, communities uh, through our homes and in our parishes.
2: Emily has a question that's coming in um, that uh, is is a question that's coming from, from quite a few people. If you teach high school CCD, how do you catechize them when they have received such poor formation so far?
1: The first thing that needs to be done is evangelization. What's the difference? Evangelization is the proclamation of the good news to bring people to faith. And if you don't have an act of faith, you cannot be catechized. It doesn't work, right? Because catechesis is a deepening of faith. Now, by baptism, we were all given the virtue of faith. But we have to help people to activate that, to really come to a personal and committed faith. So that is the absolute first thing that should be done. Textbooks can be just put back on the shelves because what's the point of teaching about something that you don't care about? I also think, and this could be hard because, you know, you have to navigate the administration. I'm in Catholic school administration, uh, but I am telling, you know, people that, you know, the, the faith has to be taught differently than other subjects. If you approach it, open up your textbook, memorize these points and put them on the text, on the test, that's a distortion of faith. So we really need to bring them to faith the best that we can, give them opportunities, invite them. Get them out of the classroom on retreat, out in the streets doing things, right? But also in small groups, like let's talk to them about life through the eyes of faith. Like I said, God wants us to see the world through his eyes. Let's help them to do that. And if we just pile on doctrine, now I'm a theologian and I love teaching doctrine. They need to know the doctrine. But if we pile that on them without those other things, you know, it's not going to be helpful. A friend of mine who is teaching high school even said that. The students have said, we never felt like we had a choice. We just felt like this was being forced on us. And so we need to to, to really invite them, unpack things in a personal way and help them to think through life from that perspective.
2: Daniel asks, um, if we are able to invite our youth to a relationship with our Lord through mentorship, how are we to do this if our adults are not catechized if their parents aren't catechized i guess
1: yeah we need to catechize them so um you know if we need stronger community and i would really recommend that every catechetical program whether it's rcia adult formation confirmation regular catechesis high school education whatever it is form small groups that there's a kind of a commitment here a smaller group of people who are committed to praying together and talking about the faith together. And, and I really think that is the way that we need to go. So I even think that's most compelling for parents. Get a group of parents together, where they can have a glass of wine or some coffee or whatever, um, sit, sit around the, the table and talk about things together over a long period of time. So there's really a, a connection between people. So I think that that is what we have to do is mentor enough adults so that they can help us in in mentoring the youth. And the church does say that adult catechesis is the priority of the church's efforts of catechesis. That is the priority.
2: Um, Not to push back, but Sister Marie asks, families are busy, Dr. Stout. How do we engage them for the evangelization mission within and beyond their families?
1: Yeah, what I recommend when I talk to pastors and parish leaders, school leaders, is I say, get the parents together, right? You have to require something at the beginning of the year. And you need to tell them that this is overwhelming, that if your kids are not supported in their faith by you, absolutely, more likely than not, they are not going to practice their faith. So do you want them to practice their faith? And they may say, actually, I don't really care. But but if, if you have enough parents who say, well, yeah, I do care about that, well, then, we need to, then we need to say, okay, if you do care, then you need to join a small faith group. You have to, right? Because the way that we do religious ed at our school or at our parish is by partnering with parents, and that's non-negotiable. So catechesis over the last 50 years, I'm just going to put this out there. I don't think this is controversial. It has failed. It has. I mean, you just look at the numbers. I mean, we've lost the overwhelming majority of our kids. It's failed. So you want it to work? We have to do things radically different. And I think there's a lot of parishes and schools that aren't ready for that. And if we don't do things radically different, the slide is going to continue. It's even going to get worse.
2: Liz asks, should we evangelize before we teach the Catholic faith or can we evangelize within catechetics?
1: Well, the catechetical programs are your opportunity to evangelize. So, yes, um, there is a book that um, just came out by James Pauley called Evangelizing Catechesis. And I guess that's really what I'm getting at. If you're going to catechize, if you're going to teach the faith. Make sure that you're doing it in a, in a way that is sharing the good news and inviting people into faith.
2: Teresa asks, um, well, she starts off saying, I have several dear friends and family members who have rejected the church and God, and they're hostile to even the mention of God or prayer. And she says, what can you possibly say to someone like that?
1: You are good. God loves you. I love you. Don't argue with them. Because if you argue with somebody who's rejecting God and the faith, that make them more angry. So you need to witness to them and, and you witness God's love and, and you witness your own love for them. You pray for them, you make sacrifices for them. You know, Jesus said there are certain demons that can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. Rejection of the faith is one of them. So if there's someone you love and you want to bring them back to faith, pray for them and fast for them.
2: Um, Another question coming in is asking about the the relationship between the liturgy and and. And catechesis. Yes, it's a very
1: good point because I do think that that effort of enculturation, that is to bring the faith into the modern world and speak in a modern way, has absolutely shaped the liturgy that we experience. Um, and there's even many, many, many people have pointed this out, including Pope Benedict himself. There's even a disconnect between what Vatican II said and what happened. I um, mean, and even in the the, the documents surrounding the new mass, it never said for the priest to face the people, for instance. What happens when the priest faces the people? It looks like the mass is for the people, like it's being done for them. But the, the goal of the mass is to give glory to God. And so the whole point is that the priests and people do this together, facing God. Um, so yeah, I absolutely think that there were a lot of mistakes that were made in the enculturation of the liturgy. And, and what we really need to do is to focus on God more than anything else. So it relates to what I was saying in the talk, that faith unites us to him and the purpose of mass and our prayers is to unite us to him. And so the mass should be celebrated in such a way that it points to God and gives him glory rather than focusing on the people in a kind of horizontal way. It needs to have a vertical focus towards God. And it needs to be beautiful, mysterious, and transcendent. And that's not my opinion. That's what the church herself teaches.
2: Phil, go ahead with your question for Dr. Stout.
1: Um, It's it's kind of a two-part question, but they're related. So uh, to what you said, Dr. Stout, about Pope Benedict saying that Vatican II didn't ever actually said face the congregation. And then to, so the other part is in 1968 when Humanae Vitae was promulgated and there was this, rebellion like you said why is it why does it seem like like what happened did any of these priests that were out there saying these things were contradictory or did any of the priests who basically disregarded the vatican ii documentation and just started facing the crowd like was there any sort of like discipline and if not why not so to take the two separately Pope Paul VI himself started saying mass towards the people. So Vatican II didn't tell us to do it. The documents following Vatican II never said to do it, but it did just happen. There was a kind of revolution even in the liturgy. It, the, no document ever said to take out communion rails. You know, no document ever said to, to receive communion on the hand. Actually, it said the contrary: you should not receive communion on the hand. It just happened, right? It was it was this kind of what we, we call it the spirit of Vatican II. Right, that just it was a revolution that just took off, and and the Pope even was kind of swept up with it. But but he himself, and, and there's indication this was on the feast of Saint Peter and Paul in the early 1970s. Um, he's even reflecting on what happened with the liturgy. Paul the Sixth said, "The smoke of Satan has filled the church, has entered the church." Right. That's a famous line. But but he even sensed that, oh my gosh, this has gone off the rails, right? You know. Now. Vatican II took a different approach. Every single ecumenical council in all of the church's history issued anathemas. What is an anathema? It's say, well, if you don't hold this, then you're you're, at, you're anathema. You're excommunicated. John the 23rd said, "There's not going to be any anathemas at Vatican II because this is we're positively teaching the faith and we're inviting people." Uh, there actually were priests suspended for dissenting to Humane Vitae after Vatican uh, after uh, it came out. But Paul VI told bishops to reinstate them. And so um, what unfortunately happened is all the way up to the top, it seemed like even though the church was going to insist on the truth, which of course she's going to, right? She was not going to insist on conformity to the truth. Um, And it's unfortunate. Now, Pope Pius, St. Pope Pius, had issued an oath against modernism that every priest had to take. And there were a lot of bad feelings about that. And that could be part of the reason why maybe there was an error to the opposite extreme, you know? Um, and so Paul VI simply tolerated dissent from Human Vitae without consequences, unfortunately. That was his decision. And I think, you know, historically speaking, right? we always want to be respectful. He is a canonized saint. But we want to say, I'm not sure that was the right thing to do.
2: So we have a question here coming in how do you view legitimate disagreement within the Catholic church or between the Catholic church and other denominations on God's will on particular issues? Um, like for example, reproductive issues and, and, uh, this, uh, this listener writes, should we always assume that the Catholic church is uniquely positioned to the divine will over learned and sincere theologians?
1: Yes, because, The magisterium, which is the teaching authority of the church, which resides um, in bishops, um, has a particular grace of the Holy Spirit so that when the Pope pronounces something ex cathedra, that's a formal statement and it's very rare, when there's an ecumenical council or when all of the bishops teach something in unison with one another throughout time and space, that that is infallible. That doesn't mean anything that a bishop says. Not, not even anything that a, the Pope has. The Pope does not have a charism of infallibility for everything that he says and does. That's an absolute misunderstanding, right? When you read Vatican I, it, it's very uh, clear circumstances in which the Pope has the charism of infallibility. But so there is no other institution that has that charism of infallibility. So absolutely, you know, I'm a theologian. I have a mandatum from the bishops to teach on their behalf of my particular bishop, that is. But, you know, I, and I assist the magisterium in my work, but I do not have, and my wife will tell you this, right? There is no charism of infallibility here. Um, and so that resides within the bishops um, as a whole, right? So is it possible for an individual bishop to fall into heresy? Yes. Is it possible, and I, I could see this in questions even in the chat box, is it possible for a bishop's conference to fall into heresy? Yes. Right, but we're saying throughout time, that is when the church teaches consistently throughout all of our history and unanimously even throughout all of the church at one time, that that is where you would see the charism of infallibility.
2: There's a question here that I'm interested to, uh, to hear your answer from Paul. Should we reintroduce the likes of the Baltimore Catechism?
1: I would say that that is one source, right? And it is very effective for memorizing doctrine. So do my kids memorize the Baltimore Catechism? Yes. <laughs> what they weren't doing you know, prior to the 1960s with the Baltimore Catechism um, was reading the Bible, doing Lectio Divina, having a liturgical catechesis, right? And I've seen bad liturgical catechetical programs, by the way. Um, and so there's a kind of richness here And when Pope Benedict says that catechesis can't simply be informative, but it needs to be performative, we need more than the Baltimore Catechism, right? And I think in the past we assume, well, if they memorize the doctrine, then they're good. I've met enough non-practicing Catholics who can still rattle off the Baltimore Catechism to know that it is not sufficient in itself, but it is helpful.
2: All right, Dr. Stout, we'll get you out of here on on this one. do you have any programs for catechesis or, um, I guess, uh, curriculum that you would recommend people take a look at when it comes to adult or child catechesis, other than the Institute of Catholic Culture, of course?
1: Okay. There is one program that you all need. You need it desperately. It works every time. And it's the Bible, uh, supported by the catechism. And so really, this is true of all teachings. Teachers need to be well-formed and then it doesn't matter what they teach. Right. And I'm saying right within, it's like what St. Augustine said, love and do what you will. And that means truly rooted in God's charity, you know, be rooted in the Bible, be rooted in the catechism out of a genuine faithfulness to the church and an apostolic zeal. And you don't need it. You don't need a program. You don't need a curriculum, you know? Um, So I, I think that, What we need to do is, right, we need to to introduce the Bible to our students and pray. Lexio Divina is crucial. Pope Benedict said it would bring about a new springtime in the church. So, what I would really say is that we open up with prayer, right, with Lexio Divina and allow God to speak to us. Give him, you know, let him enter into some silence. God speaks in silence. Then introduce some doctrine. I would say, I'm not a fan of textbooks. You teach it, you introduce the doctrine, you proclaim it, you know, then, then this is when you would then talk, you get into smaller groups and you talk through what has been presented. Right. And then you pray in response to that, maybe as a small group, and then maybe do something social after that so that there can be, you know, once again, this experience of community alongside of it. So I, I think that's the winning formula. It's not a textbook textbooks. You know, it can sometimes be helpful, but if you rely on a textbook, that's a crutch, right? It's got to come from you as the teacher. Amen.
2: Dr. Stout, would you mind closing us in prayer tonight?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we give you all praise, glory, and honor. We thank you for the gift of our faith. We ask you to help us to understand it better. We ask you to form our consciences and help us to form them the best that we can. We also ask you to help us in proclaiming the gospel and in our efforts to teach the faith to others. Bless our parishes, our schools, our families. Truly inflame our hearts with your most Holy Spirit. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen
2: dr jared stout it was a wonderful evening thank you so much for all of your thoughts and your insights tonight really appreciate it
0: we hope you enjoyed this program from the institute of catholic culture remember to download our app and share our online library with friends co-workers and family members To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.